This series contains occasional references to abuse, sexual misconduct, and other topics that some people might find disturbing. I remember um, when I was six, I went with my father on what I thought was just a house call. He did a lot of house calls back in the 70s and 80s. Jennifer Saginer's father is a doctor, but this is no ordinary house call. It's an appointment at the LA Playboy Mansion. I honestly thought I was going to Disneyland. It was the most beautiful, magical castle I had ever seen. While her dad goes upstairs for his visit, Jennifer is free to explore the lush property outside. I started roaming around the grounds and was told I could go swimming and there was tons of bathing suits that I could try on. What an adventure. She gets into the pool. I went swimming and went under this waterfall into this grotto and came up and just remember seeing people having sex. Jennifer has no way of knowing that this is the infamous grotto. On a couch right next to the water, the actor John Belushi is having sex with one of the playmates. I I really didn't know what it was. I just didn't realize that it was something enjoyable. I thought maybe the girl was, you know, that something was happening to her. (laughs) It wasn't really... I wasn't conscientious that this was like an enjoyable act. As quickly as she can, she swims out from under the waterfall and runs away from the pool. I think I was just probably scared because I was young. Jennifer's father, Mark Sagener, becomes Hefner's personal physician and close friend. Jennifer grows up in the mansion, surrounded by sex and drugs. I was in this cult-like culture, right, where these were the rules. It's like game on, it's open sexuality and hedonism. Her story sheds light on what Hefner didn't want people to see about life at the mansion. The lines that she says were crossed. I was invited to his room late at night. She saw, at close range, how he used his power to control the narrative. Those interviews were canceled all in succession. Sort of like the mafia, like, boom, that's done. I'm Amy Rose Spiegel, and this is Power, Hugh Hefner, and the Rise and Fall of Playboy. In the last episode, we heard how Hefner's daughter, Christy, grew up with her mother, sheltered from her father's way of life. It was only once she was at college, an adult, that she became closer to him and then entered his world to manage the business side of Playboy Enterprises. But all this time, there was a child living at the mansion. Her name is Jennifer Saginer, and her experience could not have been more different from Christie's. The story begins with her father, Dr. Mark Saginer, My father was a very, very successful diagnostician, and people would go to him when they couldn't figure out what was going on with them health-wise, and all the other doctors couldn't figure it out. In the 70s, he's starting to earn a reputation in celebrity circles. 
For example, like Suzanne Plachette, a very big actress during that time, he actually, you know, diagnosed her and helped save her life. And then she went on the Johnny Carson show and said, my doctor saved my life. And she read a poem to him out loud. And then from there, it just spiraled to Michael Jackson and Frank Sinatra and just so many other celebrities. But one of Dr. Saganer's famous patients is more than just a client. And he'll come to shape the course of Mark and Jennifer's lives. At the mansion, he became Hef's personal doctor, and they became very, very, very dear friends. They had a major commonality of interests, so they bonded on many different levels, especially intellectually. And when you say they had a lot in common intellectually, what do you mean by that? They both had very high IQs, very, very smart people. I think it's very, especially in that like setting of those types of like party people, I think it was hard to find intellectuals. I just think that immediately they just really connected. Jennifer's father is known around the house as Doc. He brings more than just intellectual banter to Hefner's parties. Back then, everybody knew that he was sort of a go-to guy for whatever you needed. Right. (laughs) And Hefner was taking a lot of uppers throughout that period as well, correct? That's, I mean, that's what I heard. I don't, I'm sure everyone indulged. As her father enjoys his place in Hefner's inner circle, Jennifer spends more and more time at the mansion. To a kid, the house feels like a dream come true. So I started going there when I was six, and I would go after school with my father, and that was amazing, of course, because I just would run around and just have so much fun and become lost in all these different adventures on the grounds. And there'd be a disco party. There'd be the village people that were performing. There was, you know, Saturday Night Fever, uh, dance party. So I would want to stay later and later. But at that young age, she's aware of the price of entry for the women at the mansion. Even like at 11, I understood. The playmates walked around topless and without clothes. And these were the rules, right? It's like game on. And anyone who stepped foot in that environment knew that. I was in this cult-like culture, right? Where open sex and open sexuality was the norm, Jennifer absorbs the mansion mindset not only by observing these women, but also through hanging out with Hefner, her dad, and their tight clique of male friends. I just always felt like it was such an honor to be included in their boys club and to be allowed to be with them behind closed doors and to be privy to their conversations about these other women. What were the conversations like? I learned to sort of adapt to their way of thinking about the women. Um, I was always told not to get too attached to them because they would come and go, which obviously they did. I really adapted this sort of, I hate to say it's embarrassing, but the sort of misogynistic view of women because I was, you know, raised to think how they did about the women you know, sort of critique them, know what to look for in their physique and their looks, uh, one to 10, you know, just kind of run down the scale, be able to size them up quickly 
and see if they were if they would make the cut or not. And um, I was just a part of a lot of their fun and games, sarcasm, you know, jokes about whether they were appropriate for, you know, to become a playmate, to be in the magazine, in what capacity did they sort of fit in or not. And I just really looked at them as, I guess, commodities. As she enters her teenage years, Jennifer is getting into drugs. Prescriptions were just taken like candy. For me, it was just straight up benzos or straight up pain pills, you know, Percocets, Percodans, Vicodins, Xanax, and then, of course, Quaaludes. Um, It's a hard call for me between prescriptions and candy, which I preferred more back then. Um, (laughs) To me, it was like one and the same. Jennifer's mom, Susan, is trying to pull her away from the mansion. Susan has separated from Mark and has very different priorities when it comes to raising Jennifer. My mother had curfews. She had chores for me to do at home. She, of course, enforced doing homework. And I really wasn't interested in her rules and her conservative way of being. Her mom has no chance of competing with the thrills offered by her dad and the mansion. My mother and I really started arguing a lot more. And that's when I just spent more and more time with my father. Instead of just Thursdays and every other weekend, I would stay and start sleeping over there. Things come to a head. There's a legal battle for custody between her parents when Jennifer is around 14. He then took legal custody of me and my mother took legal custody of my sister. After that, Jennifer is living at the mansion most of the time and her mom is sidelined. My father hated my mother so much and he didn't want me speaking to her at all. And if I did speak to her, I would almost like, I feared that I would get in trouble or punished or yelled at. So I just really couldn't have a relationship with my mother. The mansion is her home. I felt this was my family. I loved Christmases and the eggnog and sneaking drinks. And I loved all the music, watching all the movies. I knew it wasn't normal, like I knew all my friends and what their parents were doing, but this was the only family that I knew. I'd like to hear a little bit more about the family dynamic. Who was Hefner in that family? Because your dad is there, so he's not your dad. Who was Hefner to you? Hefner to me was like an uncle, I would say. Like I just knew he was my father's very close friend. They were just like both parental roles, I guess, in this environment. I definitely didn't look to the girlfriends for that. That's for sure. Again, I was told not to get too attached to these girlfriends. And they did come and go. And they did have orgies and group sex, you know, just all the time. It was just never about like the intimacy of those relationships. The hierarchy of her unconventional household is clear. Hefner and then her father are on top. These were the the people in charge of this, like, family, I guess. They made, like, a lot of the rules, the decisions, and I really just felt like everyone else was sort of just would participate or was there as a guest. 
And when you say they made the rules, what kind of rules did you have to follow? The rules changed over the years, but just the whole idea of like the open sexuality and like how he would like open mouth kiss people. She's talking about Hefner here. Not in like a way to be creepy or to be inappropriate, but that's just that's just the way he kissed people. It was very like soft and sensual and it sort of went with the environment or just any kind of critiquing. Like if I judged anything and was like, oh, that's gross, you know, I would get in trouble or yelled at or their thinking was all about like sort of enmeshment, no boundaries. So within that, did Hefner, was he physical with you? Um, I mean, he wasn't physical with me until I had my affair with his girlfriend. We'll be back after the break. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. In the mid-80s, Jennifer Sagener is a young teenager living in a very adult idea of paradise. Hefner and her hard-partying father are the only family she has. She barely speaks to her mom. I really just didn't have any sort of maternal mother figure in my life at all. I felt like I was just like starving for maternal connection and um, attention and affection. That's when one of Hefner's girlfriends takes a special interest in her. In her memoir, Playground, A Child Lost in the Playboy Mansion, Jennifer uses the pseudonym Kendall to refer to this woman. Hefner's girlfriend, who I named Kendall in my book, really, you know, reached out to me and was very affectionate and very motherly and really sort of offered me that that connection that I thought I was looking for at that time. You know, almost like in fantasy land, you can have whatever you want, you know? So it's sort of like, and now you have a new fake mommy. But the relationship goes way beyond a maternal bond. It definitely became serious. I mean, we thought it was a secret affair, but really I think everybody knew about it. And the relationship started off I don't know, 14, really sort of like became very serious at 15. Um, That's when I think I first had like sex sex for the first time with a woman. And how much older was Kendall? She was in her early 20s. Jennifer says that before her first sexual encounter with Kendall, the older woman invites her to play Pac-Man and drink strawberry daiquiris. 
I didn't think there was something really wrong with it. I, you know, feel like I was just as sort of responsible because I, it's not like I was like, oh no, no, I don't want this. You know, I mean, I would definitely wanted the attention and affection. So, um, again, like I was in this cult-like culture, right? Where your emotions were met with sexual or physical affection. So it was the mentality. Um, yeah, I feel like I was a willing participant. And do you think Hefner knew about the relationship? He definitely knew about the relationship, of course. I think he was just getting frustrated with all of our sneaking around because, again, he's the master of his kingdom. You know, this is his world. According to Jennifer, Hefner knows about her underage affair, but he isn't concerned about her well-being. Instead, he's annoyed that people he's supposed to have power over at the mansion are seeing each other behind his back. And he's worried about the PR implications for Playboy. When we started being spotted around town and people around town started seeing us together, it became more of an issue for the company. Of course, he didn't want his business to know that his girlfriend is having this underage affair. Jennifer says that Hefner tried to reassert some control over the situation by getting involved himself when she was still only 17. I was invited to his room late at night. She's unsure why he's asked her to come see him. I didn't know what was going to happen. I remember actually a playmate stopped me at his door and said, you know, don't do anything you don't want to do. And I was like, well, what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, so I was really naive back then. She goes into Hefner's room and there's Kendall too. We ordered drinks, and there was that weird energy in the room where I was definitely nervous. Now Jennifer realizes why Hefner told her to pay him a visit that night. To engage in, like, a three-way with him and Kendall, or and or have him watch us together, because he was definitely more into watching girls together. And um, thank God Kendall started crying when we were on the bed after the butler brought the drinks. And she started crying and ran to the bathroom. And then he said to me, you know, we're not going to do anything. And again, it was just that sort of like, we're all family here vibe. You know, like <laughs> it's not like we're doing anything wrong, but okay, that's fine. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to walk you out. And he walked me to the door and that was it. Hefner, one of her two respected father figures, is in his 60s at this point. But at the time... Jennifer doesn't see much wrong with what's happening. I was really more mad that I couldn't see Kendall than I was feeling like he crossed boundaries with me. You know, it was just such a natural thing for that environment to cross boundaries that I can't say it, it was that shocking. But her feelings about Kendall do slowly change. As the years went on, it really registered more that I felt like, you know, this is sort of a manipulative like dynamic and I wasn't really as comfortable with it, obviously, when I left for college. So it basically really like officially, officially ended it. I think it was my first year of college. A spokesperson for Kendall denied Jennifer's allegations after her book was published in 2005. 
The years Jennifer has been describing were in the run-up to a major shift in the mansion ecosystem. In 1987, Hefner meets the Canadian model Kimberly Conrad, and in 1989, they're married. For millions of Playboy readers, a fantasy. For Playboy's publisher, she became his reality. America's most famous bachelor became its most unexpected bridegroom. Hefner has spent years repeating Woody Allen's quip that marriage is the death of hope. But now, he actually seems ready to settle down. I was ready for that kind of relationship. And she had the values that I was looking for. And she came to me at a time in which I was looking for a safe harbor after some very stormy seas. They have two baby boys, and Hefner's worldview has fundamentally changed. He starts to get more comfortable with the idea of happily ever after. Home and family, very close to the full circle, uh, and back again to my own Methodist beginnings. Kimberly also reigns in some of the mansion's adult excesses to make it a little more suitable for her children. The wild parties are toned down. The young women loitering by the pool are asked to wear bikinis. And some of the seediest men are no longer allowed to just come and go as they please. The Playboy Mansion has become a home, not for a playboy and his playmates, but for a husband and his family. In the throes of this new romance, and still feeling the aftereffect of his stroke a few years before, Hefner has even less interest in overseeing Playboy's business activities. And Christy Hefner, who's already president, gains even more power. He didn't want to go to board meetings, investor meetings, and that's when, the end of the 80s, I became CEO. Hefner Sr. is happy with the more laid-back role of chief creative officer and only asks for monthly reports on the rest of the business. It gave him a chance to really be a dad to Marston and Cooper in a way he was never a dad to David and me because he wasn't around when we were kids and growing up. While her dad is enjoying his new life as a family man, Christy keeps on with the job of modernizing Playboy. We experimented with different ways to create multimedia content that would be compelling. And then in the early 90s, we got very interested in the possibility of the world of Playboy online. This is huge. Playboy is one of the first publications in America to start its own website. The magazines were just licensing their name to like AOL or Prodigy or CompuServe, and they would just put some content up there and commercialize it in some way, and we were the first one to sort of build our own. Christie's also expanding Playboy's licensing and merchandising operations. That Playboy Bunny logo is suddenly appearing everywhere. Shorts, t-shirts, pencil cases. So, in effect, the strategies we were pursuing made the magazine less the tentpole that was holding everything else up than it had been in the past. Christie's sharp commercial instincts meshed well with her father's new state of mind as a married man. Together, they shift the brand away from its bachelor-focused identity. They move toward lifestyle articles and media promoting traditional relationships and values. This is Christie at the time. It isn't about if it feels good, do it. It's about getting great pleasure out of life and all of its richness and about giving back and making a difference. 
This safe, middle-of-the-road playboy fits in well with a centrist America that elects Bill Clinton in 1993. We must do what America does best, offer more opportunity to all, and demand more responsibility from all. As Playboy forges into the 90s, the dark clouds of the 80s seem to have lifted. Hefner is relishing family life, and thanks to Christie, the company is finally making a profit again. But it's not as easy for everyone else to forget the environment he cultivated in the 70s and 80s. Least of all, Jennifer. Coming up, she finds the limits of Hefner's open, anything-goes philosophy when she tries to tell her own story and experiences the power of Hefner's media machine. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. As we heard earlier, Jennifer Saginaw spent her childhood smack in the middle of Playboy's decadent party scene. It's just taken me so many decades to sort of clear my mind and understand the gravity of how possibly inappropriate that environment was for a kid. As she reaches her mid-30s, Jennifer is still processing her time at the mansion. She feels the need to tell her story publicly. In 2005, she and HarperCollins are about to release the memoir I mentioned earlier. It includes the account of her underage affair with the woman identified as Kendall. Hefner catches wind of the book as it's coming out and gives her a call. He's looking for a favor. He said, oh, your father and I are so happy and proud of you for writing this book. And if you could just please do me a favor and not tell anyone that I knew about your relationship with Kendall. She agrees, for now. She's about to head off on a publicity trip to the East Coast, and Hefner seems supportive. Your father said you were going to New York for a week, and that's so exciting to do interviews. And I was very naive then, very. I mean, just, it's like embarrassing. Hefner asks her to send him a list of interviews, supposedly so he can watch them on TV. Jennifer, who still respects Hefner immensely, is flattered that he says he's proud of her. So she agrees to this request too. I was like, sure. And I sent him, I faxed him a list of all the interviews, which the 
publicity director for HarperCollins had spent like six months trying to lock in these interviews. And then here I am faxing it over to him. And then she says something happened that she truly didn't expect. Literally, by the end of the day, I'd say 85, 90%, maybe 95 of those interviews were canceled all in succession. Just sort of like the mafia, like, boom, that's done. You must have been so disappointed. I was the most disappointed. In fact, when I look back on him and my experiences with him, I'm not as upset, honestly, about all the, like, the sexual boundaries that were crossed. I'm really more upset that the king of the First Amendment and freedom of speech silenced me. It's very telling which aspects of Playboy Hefner feels the need to control. He has ceded huge power to Christie, who runs almost the entire business for decades. But when it comes to his personal brand and the Playboy mythology he represents, he retains a vice-like grip. I think Hef was always image conscious. It was just always his number one priority. I do think that was a business strategy, 100%. Today, Jennifer can see that the Disney castle she first encountered at age six and everything that happened to her there were all a function of Hefner's marketing plan. I think that the mansion and all the parties and the guests just really represented a lifestyle that you could buy into. You know, you buy the magazine, you buy into this lifestyle. The image of Playboy was associated with his image of the Playboy mansion. So to me, I didn't realize that there was like a bigger system at play here, like a corporation, a machine that controlled the image of the Playboy mansion. And to me, looking back, that's all it was. But she hasn't totally resolved her feelings about some of the other people who are caught up in that machine. Even now, she finds it hard to sympathize with most of the other young women who are trying to find their footing amid a very specific engendered system of risks and rewards. I don't know, I probably just shouldn't go there, but it's just, it, it, it on some level, that conflict is stirred up in me when I see some of these women come forward after they've made, you know, $20 million and they're famous and have lots of opportunities in the entertainment business. And now it's like uh, some of these women, they look back and they, they're just like, oh, I was taken advantage of or I was a victim. It just sort of, I don't know, rubs me the wrong way. Because it's like, well, how could you be, how could you look at yourself like that when you took your own steps to get ahead and to stay in an environment that would lead you to your next introduction or opportunity. It wasn't like we were being held against our will. I mean, I was a child, so if anything, I had nowhere else to go. But I know for a fact that these women could have left at any time. I understand that it must feel difficult to square up the fact that there were good times that happened in the mansion and it sounds like incredibly hard times that had sort of long-lasting ramifications. And I'm sorry for anybody who did have a hard time. And I'm sorry that you did. And I understand that that doesn't change the fact that you loved your dad and you loved Hefner and they were in charge of taking care of you. Right. 
Yeah, no, it's a, I have a lot of conflict um, to this day about it and get immediately like defensive. Like it's just a very, it's an ongoing internal conflict because I was conditioned to be one of the guys, identify with one of the guys to honor that privilege of being welcomed into the boys club. Yeah. I'm still trying to work it out, but it's weird. It's like I, I, I can I can give the men a pass more easily than I can the women. You were a kid who was being taught, here's how you get to stay around, is to be dismissive of women and to see them in this objectifying and distanced kind of way. Of course, that would be hard to shake. Of course, that would continue to be something that you think about. And struggle with. Yeah. Jennifer emphasizes to me that she has forgiven her father and Hefner and that she's not blaming them. And by the way, we reached out to Mark Sagener for comment about what Jennifer said, which are also things she recounted in her book. He said he categorically denies her claims. Toward the end of our conversation, Jennifer is still working through how to think about the culture of the mansion. She frames those years in terms of distraction and addiction. I believe that the Playboy Mansion was just more about distracting from our true selves. It represented and embodied an environment where we were far away from, or they were far away, or everyone is far away from dealing with God, ourselves, our intimacy, our truth. In doing so, we engaged in drugs and alcohol and sexual addictions, anything to distract from dealing with that truth. And I think each of us had our own truth that we were running from, including my father, including Hef, including probably a lot of those women who were there. They were all running from their truth. I was so moved by this conversation with Jennifer because it brought into sharp relief so many of the themes we've been thinking about in this series so far. It can be difficult to extricate yourself from manipulation, especially when it's sexualized and you're a young person. And it can be even more difficult to see the contours of what manipulation does to you even after you think you've gotten away from it. When your value system and sense of self are predicated on misogyny and you're rewarded for participating in it, it's so hard to form another worldview. Jennifer is adamant that she doesn't see herself as a victim, but the culture she describes at the mansion is one that seems almost purpose-built for abusers. In the next episode, I'm going to speak to a woman who knows that culture better than anyone. I just think it's a misogynistic view. Like if there's a woman involved in a situation involving sex and she's over 18, then she just needs to suck it up and take anything negative that comes along with it and not say anything about it because she deserves it because she had sex. Holly Madison's experience as one of Hefner's girlfriends in the 2000s throws a harsh new light on his methods of manipulation and control. That's next time on Power, Hugh Hefner, and the rise and fall of Playboy. Hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. This week, you'll find an extended cut of my conversation with the writer and comedian Rebecca Jackson Artis. 
Her aunts are charismatic identical twins who worked as Playboy bunnies in the Chicago Club and the mansion in the 1960s. You'll also find extended cuts of other conversations with women you've heard from in the series. If you're an Apple Podcast subscriber, you'll also be able to hear ad-free episodes every week. And here are the people who made our show. Power Hugh Hefner is a Something Else production. It's hosted by me, Amy Rose Spiegel. The series producer is Dave Anderson, and the producers are Georgia Mills, Chica Ayers, and Paul Smith. Our associate producer is Millie Chu. Mixing and sound design come from Sam Baer and Josh Hahn. Mira Sharma and Peggy Sutton are the editors. The executive producer is Peggy Sutton. With thanks to Jen Mystery, Ike Egbatola, Mia Warren, Grant Irving, Lily Hambly, Gulliver Lawrence Tickle, Siobhan Donnelly, Jez Nelson, and Leanne Richardson. If you love the show, follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps new listeners find the show. Hi, everyone. One last thing. Thank you to all of you for listening to Power Hugh Hefner. We hope you're loving the show as much as we love making it, and we want to hear from you. Your feedback goes a long way, and it only takes a few minutes. Just head to powerpod.fans to answer a few questions. Thank you so much.